So welcome everyone to Zazenkai. Good to see so many people here. Last Tuesday I gave a talk and the title of it was The True Man of No Rank and uh, it's based on a, a koan by the uh, Zen teacher Rinzai who said there is a true man of no rank who's coming in, in and out of your senses all of the time. Look, look, who is that man of no rank or that woman of no rank? Mm -hmm. And I also connected it with a a book that I had read recently, which I think is a very good book and I'd recommend you to read it. Um, and it's written by Elaine de Botton, who's a very well-known philosophical writer, and it's called Status Anxiety. And it outlines in a very clear historical way how we're all caught up with superior and inferior, where we are in the status hierarchy in a culture. <clears throat> and we're all caught up in it in one degree or the other and it's what runs our lives to a large extent because any human being who uh, goes beyond just having food and shelter and then wants to have interesting clothes, objects, wants to live in a nice area, da 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 da, as soon as you get beyond that you're, you're into some kind of status. And the reason why he says that we have status anxiety is that there's kind of two loves that he outlines and one is kind of okay and acknowledged and the other one isn't really and it's okay to be loved in like an intimate relationship to be married have a partner or family who love you and you love in return that's okay sort of um, forbidden kind of love or unacknowledged kind of love but it's out there all the time is that we want to be loved by the world. We want to be respected. Um, we want to be thought of well. You know? And so that's what drives everyone's um, need for higher education and better material things and a good house and good clothes, etc., etc. And we're all caught up in, it in one degree or the other. <coughs> but when it's unacknowledged, like any like emotion that's unacknowledged, if it's not acknowledged, it comes out in a twisted kind of way, like something like snobbery. And <clears throat> Rinzai's statement, the true man of no rank, is addressing the fundamental principle there, which is in all true spirituality, not just Zen, but Christianity as well, um, that the spiritual path is about getting out of this game of superior and inferior comparison. And that's the great liberation of um, Dharma practice and spiritual practice, is to get out, not just intellectually get outside of those concepts, but to be really free of them. So we see the, we see the equality that runs through all things. Mm -hmm. That's the great liberation, <coughs> one aspect of it anyway. Now, <clears throat> to give this name a talk, the, the name of this talk is Wabi Sabi. Some of you may be familiar with that term and some may not, but it's a Japanese term which describes a certain aesthetic sense. And uh, <clears throat> by the way, this talk might meander a little bit 
Um, it's not going to be quite so linear, but it's kind of in the spirit of wabi-sabi, I suppose, anyway, and that it's rather incomplete and asymmetrical. But I'm going to go back a lot into some of my um, memories and experiences of when I first took up Zen practice in Japan and lived in um, Kyoto back in the 1970s. But let me give you um, an idea of what wabi-sabi is. Um, It's uh, a Japanese aesthetic sense centred on the acceptance of transience and imperfection. And it's a beauty that's imperfect, impermanent and incomplete. And it's based on the Buddhist teachings of what's called the three marks of existence, of the suffering in the world, transience and emptiness. So it embraces those principles. And characteristics of wabi-sabi include asymmetry, roughness, simplicity, economy, austerity, modesty, intimacy, and the appreciation of the ingenuous integrity of natural objects and processes. And the words themselves, the, the word wabi actually originally meant something like this, the feeling of solitariness that comes from being in nature. And sabi means um, withered. That, that kind of gives you a, a sense of what it, it's um, describing. So, for example, just in terms of ordinary everyday objects, you might have an old leather shoe, a pair of shoes you've been wearing for years, and they're all wrinkled, you know, and a bit scuffed and so on, but they look beautiful. And you don't want to throw them out. Mm -hmm. That's wabi sabi. Or you go touring somewhere and you see a run down ruined castle or building and it looks so beautiful and that's why we study. So the kind of poverty of spirit in this and what in simple words <coughs> it's that it's describing something where nothing lasts, nothing is finished and nothing is perfect. Mm -hmm. And the practice of Zen embraces those principles as well. And yet so often these worldly values of superior, inferior, hierarchy and so on, they make their way over into spiritual practice. They don't get left behind necessarily. A bit like, do you know when you've got chewing gum on your fingers and you try and pull it off one finger and it sticks to the other finger? And you pull off the other one and it sticks to that one. Well, <clears throat> taking up a, a spiritual practice, we're trying to get rid of these worldly views of snobbery and status and so on, you know, and clean it all out. But inevitably, human beings as they are make bring that worldliness into spirituality as well. And we get spiritual snobbery, you know, and we get status and so on, and titles and etc. etc. Um, but the true nature of spirituality is really to cut cleanly through all of that, to see it for what it is. <coughs> And may I remind you, as I've said in a previous talk, the word Zen, the Chinese character for Zen that someone informed me about last year, it actually means manifesting simplicity. Manifesting simplicity. So Zen Buddhism is Buddhism that manifests simplicity. So it's got a Zen's got a wabi-sabi kind of feel about it. <coughs> We're not creating art objects that are wabi-sabi, but in our character we're kind of 
and great wanting to bring out those characteristics. Mm -hmm. Incompleteness, imperfect, but those things are beautiful in themselves. You do zathin, you do like with meditation <coughs> this morning. Um, we've all wandered off course. When we come back, we wander off course. We come back. It's not perfect. No one sits with a perfectly linear laser beam concentration. We're all imperfect and incomplete. We wander off, back we come, wander off, back we come. That's the nature of practice. But let me um, <clears throat> just go into some of my memories of living in Kyoto. First of all, I think my very favourite um, verse, I won't call it a haiku because it's not technically a haiku, but my favourite verse is one by Dogen Zenji. And the verse goes, There at midnight, windless, waveless, the old boat is swamped with moonlight. And apparently he wrote that, that verse um, when he was travelling back to Kyoto from his temple Aheji, which is about two and a half hours train ride out of Kyoto these days. But um, Dogen grew up in Kyoto, became a, went to China, came back and became a Zen priest. And he wanted to get as far away from Kyoto as he possibly could. It was the imperial capital. He wanted to get away from all the pomp and the ceremony and the hierarchy and the status. So he found this little temple way out in the middle of nowhere. And even if you go out to it today, you take a, a big train that takes you past Lake Biwa, where this poem was um, written. And then you get another little train, and then you get another little train, and then you walk to this really obscure little valley, and then you see this, this beautiful temple. So you just want to get right away from it all. And this um, verse has the spirit of um, wabi-sabi, you know, kind of a poverty of spirit. And when you, I'm being a bit philosophical about it, but when you look at it, those words there at midnight, the word midnight conjures up <coughs> in a Zen poetic sense, like the, the deep dark of night, the middle, it's kind of a um, metaphor for emptiness. There at midnight, windless, waveless, like the stillness, the emptiness. Within that emptiness, the old boat is swamped with moonlight. That empty boat is full of moonlight, right? And it's a beautiful translation because <coughs> The cadence comes down on the word swamped. Swamped with moonlight. And in a philosophical sense, that poem embraces emptiness as form and form as emptiness. The, the emptiness is full, the formless is empty. And I imagine this, um, this little um, boat as being a little old fishing boat, and it's worn down through use, and it's nearly falling apart, and it's um, helping a poor family to survive. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a beautiful poem. But uh, Dogen, in the true spirit of sin, felt like he needed to get right away from this kind of worldly, competitive, hierarchical, status-driven society, so that his monks could be free of that and really see into something that was much more simple. And we aspire to do the same thing today. Now I'm jumping here, <coughs> but um, another book I read recently 
and read a lot of books over the holidays. Um, it was one by um, John Ruskin. And John Ruskin was a 19th century, I think, art critic and political scientist. He's actually the person who inspired Gandhi to take up his um, Satyagraha movement. And um, he had this same sense of wabi-sabi that he appreciated in art. He was a great fan of John Turner. So he, he describes the same thing about looking at old boats, like old working boats, not sort of big commercial fancy boats, but old working boats, and seeing how warm they are and the beauty that's there in the, in the bow of one of those boats. And it describes John Turner's paintings as also capturing this asymmetrical kind of worn, torn look about boats because they're working boats and they're out there in the storms. And if you look at the faces of old sailors, same thing, you know, that the character that's etched into their faces from being out in the wind and, um, and in the weather for so long, the wizened faces. And if you look at them a certain way, there's an incredible character and beauty in those faces, which is not necessarily the um, aesthetic ideal of our culture. But there's a beauty which is there. Coming back to Kyoto, when I lived there, um, I had a lot of time in my hands. I wasn't working, I was doing Zen practice every day and going to the temple, but I had the afternoons off. And I visited all the so many temples in, in Kyoto, and there's many, many ones which are there. So I visited all the Zen temples. It's like I went on a daily pilgrimage and walked to a temple and had a look at it and came back. And then I went through all the Zen temples. I started to look at the Shingon temples and the Nichiren temples and so on. And, um, and then I remember there was one particular one I wanted to see which was called the Temple of a Thousand Buddhas. And so I went out of my way to see this one, and it was um, a thousand Buddhas all lined up perfectly in symmetry, all sort of gold um, plated. And it was, I thought, I'm done with Buddhist temples now after this one. Because they kind of look like, like a rows and rows of kind of businessmen in suits <laughs> at a business conference or something. You know, sitting up there like they're in their gold. And it didn't seem to me quite in the spirit of Bobby Sabi, but I didn't know those words at the time. And so what I did from then, I, I thought, I'm not, I'm not going to any more temples, I'm sick of them. And I then used to wander the back streets of Kyoto into all these sort of old suburban areas. And I came across ruined temples, like abandoned temples, like old Zen temples that had grass growing over them, the tiles were falling down, you know, and there was grass growing through the cracks. And do you know that um, outside temp Buddhist temples there's, there's two guardians on each side? Those big bothered guys like that. They're fighting demons. And they look like bouncers outside a nightclub. They're kind of like, you know, if you're going to come in here, don't mess with, with things. Right? This is serious stuff. And, um, and they were all cracked and worn. Instead of looking intimidating, you sort of had compassion for them because they're so <laughs> faded. And, right? And I remember thinking, I kept, I was, I was entranced by them. I used to go back over and over again to seek out these old temples, and I just intuitively was attracted to them. I didn't know anything about Wabi Sabi at the time. I didn't understand it intellectually, but that's what I was seeking out. This sort of old ruined um, 
experience of, with outsiders, statements of some kind. Um, like I said before, um, I don't mean this in a cynical way, um, or a bitter way, but worldliness comes into spiritual practice, it comes into institutionalised religion all of the time, you know, with titles, with the clothes that people wear, um, the air of superiority and so on that they develop because they've got wisdom. Mm -hmm. And yes, it's important that we revere wisdom in people who have it, who are genuinely outside of that superior, inferior comparison. Mm -hmm. um, but so frequently, the real message gets lost. But when you look at the, the great founders of religion, you know, Jesus was a carpenter. Buddha came from a high-status family. He became downwardly mobile gave it all away right, to become a, a forestman. Since Francis was born into a high status family, dropped out of it to a life of simplicity and voluntary poverty. And they're, they're our true aspirations, those people we're aspiring to. Um, another Zen story associated with Kyoto, and maybe it's true or not, I don't know, but it's a good story. Um, the, um, one of the great Zen teachers of Japan was Ikkyu, who lived in Kyoto, and he's a bit of a radical. And um, he ended up becoming the abbot of a great temple. And um, the benefactors of the temple um, put on this big feast for him, benefit dinner. And so he thought, okay, I'll, teach, I'll, I'll do a bit of teaching here. So what he did, he, he didn't go in his robes, he got on got some beggar's robes and put mud all over his face and looked really uncouth and came up to the door with a begging bowl and said, you know, I'm, I'm hungry, could I have some arms? I said, go away, you know, go away. This is dinner for the great priest, if you, you know, off with you. And then um, an our lady comes back in his purple robes, you know, and stands there and he says, by the way, remember that... that that uh, beggar that came, that was me, you know, and you, you kicked him out and yet you revere me because I'm in the purple robe, right? Good teaching. Whether it happened or not, I don't know, but it's a good teaching. And other, other instances come to mind too, other memories come back. Um, in the temple that I um, practiced in, we would do um, sazen in the morning and then we would do a period of samu like we did this morning, it's usually weeding the garden. And I remember that there was this um, woman who used to come to the temple every few weeks, and she was kind of looked like a, the way she was dressed. She came in a Mercedes and parked a Mercedes, and she had perfectly coiffed hair, and she looked like a Japanese society matron, and she came with a baked cake, and she would come to bring a, a baked cake to the priest. And we would be working in the, there and she would come past us and she treated us with total disdain. <laughs> uh, she wouldn't look at us, she wouldn't acknowledge us, you know, and she'd take the cake in and she'd walk out with her nose in the air. Uh, and at worshipping at the shrine of Wabi Sabi, uh, we can do it and never really get it. Mm -hmm. And we weren't angry with her, we just used to look out from the weeding and go, look at one another and go, 
roll their eyes, go back to reading again. Some people don't get it. And the same happens in our culture. You see, the same thing happens with churches here. Similar thing. By contrast, I don't know why I remember this, but it really touched me at the time. It's just a simple little ordinary moment in everyday life in Japan. But I used to buy my bread from this particular bakery, which was around the corner from me. And one day I was walking home from the Zen temple to go home, and one of the old women there who, who used to serve me, I could see she was kind of looking down, and she looked really, really sad. And then suddenly she noticed that I was looking at her and, and you know, and we, our eyes met. And she gave me the most beautiful, kind smile. It wasn't a fake smile. It was like, oh, you know, can't be sad. It was kind of like a, a genuine kindness smile. It's like she lifted out this sadness and saw me and then wanted to connect. And I was, I was so touched by it. That I, remember, I still remember it very clearly to this day. That's, that's just a spontaneous, un, um, uncontrived, if that's the right word, um, response to something in life that really captures, you know, a, a sort of poverty of spirit in, in the genuine sense of it. So, when we bring this back to our own practice, um, Remember, we are called the Ordinary Mind Zen School. Mm -hmm. And it's important that in taking up this practice, um, that we're true to the spirit of that name. You know, and the spirit of this practice should be always to get really cut through and see those superficial concepts of, of superior and inferior we get caught up in. And to even bring it to the way that we practice Zen practice. Because even being the ordinary mind Zen school, we could go, oh yeah, we're actually superior because we're ordinary. Right. Yeah, really got it. Um, and that's, that's a false way of practicing as well. In our school, Joko never took up the title Roshi. And the rest of us never took up the title Roshi as well in the same spirit because we didn't want to create this sort of hierarchy. But then again, you can not call yourself a Roshi and think you're superior, right? Because you're doing it. Again, it's like picking the chewing gum off and it sticks to the other thing. It goes deeper than that. Um, to really see through the, the, the falseness and the suffering that comes out of that superiority, inferior dichotomy. And um, speaking of, of Joko, I could imagine if Joko could hear this talk from her grave, that she'd say to me, Jeff, that's all bar humbug. <laughs> and she'd say, she'd maybe say something like, you're trying to um, create this pretty Japanese ideal out of Zen practice, and it's not pretty, right? Rough, it's tough. <laughs> and I'd have to bow with her to her for admonishing me too because there's something in that. But I, what I would say to her is you did call it the Ordinary Mind Zen School and one of your favourite sayings that you repeated over and over again which we loved and we loved you saying was on a withered branch a flower blooms. 
on a withered branch, a flower bloom. And Joko in herself epitomised this wabi sabi spirit as someone who was down to earth, unpretentious, a little bit rough around the edges some, sometimes, mm-hmm. um, <coughs> but really embodied this down, down to earth spirit of um, genuine humility. And um, um, we can aspire to it, we can't expect it, we can't aspire to it, and we can't kind of make it a goal either. Um, we just have to do the work day by day, and then the wisdom naturally kind of just emerges, it can't be created. And if we practice in that way, to go back to those um, fundamental Buddhist teachings, the three marks of existence, suffering, emptiness, transience. Um, our practice is to be marked by those marks of existence. Our practice is to allow the suffering to be there, only not in a victim way, in a noble way, to allow the transience and the aging process to be there, to recognise the insubstantiality of who we are and what life is. And allow ourselves to be touched by those elements rather than trying to rise above them into some perfect idea of enlightenment. Forget about that. And if you practice in that way, something just, it's not contrived, you don't create it, it just emerges out of your being. And that's the way to um, continue with this practice.